0: Briefly, just by way of uh, a recap of what we saw last week, our God is called in Scripture very simply the God of love. Now, if you know anything about pagan cultures or pagan societies, you know that they would very often have a great many gods, and there would be gods assigned to different aspects of, of their world. There might be a, For them, there, there might be a God of love, there might be a, a goddess of love, of fertility, there might be a God of war, there might be a God that uh, handled or, or oversaw their crops, there might be a God of the sea, there might be a God of the sky. When we say and when the Scriptures refer to our God as the God of love, it's not referring to God in the way that those pagan uh, cultures refer to their many gods. It's not, we're not saying that we have a God who focuses His attention strictly on the concept of love. But we're saying that we have a God who, in His very essence, is love itself. He's not merely a God who loves sometimes, but He is the God of love. It is who He is to love. Love is essential to God. We saw that, God, or that God's love or the love of God is what we might call an attribute with regard to God's affections, even though when we use the word affection, we cannot read that from ourselves back into God as if God's affections are anything like ours. That just helps us to understand what we're referring to when we refer to God and His love. God is not moved with passions like we are. God is immutable, and yet He is an affectionate God in His own way. He's a God of love. Now, when we say that God is not moved with passions, that His love is not up one minute and down the next, that does not lead us to believe that His love is cold or lifeless, that it's, that it's somehow not real, that it's, that it's something like a mannequin of love. No, God's love is actually the very opposite. His love is infinite. His love is omnipotent. God's love is unresting. As we often sing, unresting, unceasing love. God's love pursues and pounces and and overcomes its objects and subdues its objects. His love, we could say, is a a conquering love. God's love began in eternity and it will not cease coming after us even into eternity. It is is the love that is the the quintessential uh, life love or a a love full of life and, and vitality. We also saw that God's love in no way infringes upon God's righteousness. This is hard for us to understand because our culture says, well, you can either have rigid, strict standards of morality, or you can have love. But you cannot have both. To love, you must bend and mold and shape your standards according to every individual individual application of of their so-called love. With God, it is not that way. His love and His righteousness are not at odds. God's love is a perfectly righteous love. God's love does not bend with the pressure of the, the will of man. Rather, God's love refuses to leave men to themselves. God's love bends men into its mold. God's love does not tolerate sin. God's love does not tolerate evil as we saw God's love we could say is an an intervening love an overturning love we might even say that God's love is an upsetting love it upsets the apple cart it rocks the boat God's love stirs the pot it upends life as we know it when his love apprehends us it changes us we do not change God he changes us in his love And so rather than needing to counteract or displace one another, God's love serves His righteous character by providing an atonement for sins. And His righteousness becomes the very vehicle by which His love would be manifested to the world in the death of His Son. They work in complete and perfect harmony. His righteousness never has to nudge out His love. His love never has to nudge out His righteousness. Now this evening, we're going to pick up on on those themes again of of how this love comes out or is shown. The title of chapter 27 is Manifestations of God's Love. Manifestations of God's Love. A manifestation is defined as an event, action, or object that clearly shows or embodies something. Synonyms for manifestation. Manifestation would be words like display or demonstration or a showing or an exhibition. Now why is it important that we we look for or find an exhibition or a manifestation of God's love? Why do we need to do this? The answer is because the love of God for anyone who's taken the time to consider God and themselves is probably one of if not the most difficult attribute of god to believe to come to terms with we don't have a problem usually understanding that god must be just that god is righteous that god is eternal that god is immutable that god is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent those those things though we might not fully understand them it's easy to confess all that all that about god obviously he's sovereign obviously he's powerful But then to say that that same God is in Himself love just as He is righteous, just as He is just and sovereign, He's love, and that love is poured out upon creatures, that's that's hard to believe. It's nothing less than His divine power that is required to open our eyes to see it and believe it. And even when He does open our eyes to see it and believe it, we still only see it and comprehend it in part. This is why Paul had to pray that the believers in Ephesus would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That we would have strength, that we would be able. The, the idea is to be strong enough. It's almost like we, we study God and we learn various attributes of God like we're working out the muscles of our faith so that we can finally get up to the, 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 the level of spiritual strength to believe God's love. We have to work our way up to that, to be strong enough in spirit to believe and to know and to understand this love of Christ. And then when we do have a grasp of it, he says, oh, and by the way, it surpasses knowledge. Whatever you might know of it or believe of it, it's far beyond that. And we should pray this prayer for ourselves and for one another. And that prayer is answered very often through the means that God has given as we behold the various ways that God has put on an exhibition, the various ways that God has manifested His love. That's why it's important. We want to look at the manifestations, and then look again, and then look again, and then look again, and then look again. And through that, by faith, we grow, and we actually, at a point in our lives, will come to be convinced, believe it or not, you will come to be convinced, God is love. He really does love His people. So let's read The opening introduction, he says, It would be easier to count all the stars in the heavens or each grain of sand on the earth than to measure or even seek to describe the love of God. Its height, depth, breadth, and width are beyond the comprehension of the greatest and most discerning creatures. Although we will never be able to fully comprehend God's love or to measure its contents, we can seek to grow in our understanding of it by considering its many demonstrations in the Scriptures. So there are basically two main headings of the chapter. The first way which he gives for us to see God's love is God's benevolence toward all creatures. God's benevolence toward all creatures. He says the word benevolence can be defined as one's disposition to seek the good of others to bless them and to promote their welfare. You see, bene, that means good. When you see volence or volition, that, that, that is a, a word that references our will, our desire to do something. Benevolence would also be, is, is uh, synonymous with goodwill. God's goodwill. God's will to do good. God does will to do good to His creatures. If He didn't will to do good, it would have all been destroyed a long time ago. He wills the good of His creatures or His creation. Now, theologians have historically distinguished between God's love of benevolence and God's love of complacence. This is because the scriptures are clear on some things, like God hates all evildoers. And we have to, we, we, we have to wrestle with this in, in our thinking. How is it that God can love all creatures, but also hate evildoers? How can that be? Well, we have to be more specific about what kind of love we're speaking of when we say that God loves and, and this is the word that, that, that or this phrase that theologians would use. His love of benevolence or His benevolent love. His general love for all creatures or his, his general will to do good. And if you would rather use the term benevolence or goodwill than the word love and reserve the word love for the, the, the covenant faithfulness of God specifically to His people, I don't have a problem with that at all. We just have to be clear that we're talking about different things. And theologians, I said, have, have distinguished. There are clearly different kinds of love. That love of complacency, the word complacence or complacency in, in uh, the way that was originally meant or used meant uh, to delight or take pleasure in. The very opposite of the way that we use it. So there was a, a general goodwill toward all creatures. But then there's also that special, delighting, pleasuring love that God has for his people. So we're, we're beginning with that first kind, his love of benevolence or his goodwill toward all creatures. He says it is the constant testimony of the scriptures that God is a loving creator who seeks the blessing and benefit of all his creatures, both the evil and the good. He is the absolute opposite of any portrayal that would depict him as a capricious or vindictive deity who would seek the downfall and misery of His creation. Capricious is unpredictable, lashing out at times. You never know what exactly is going to happen. That's not God. Vindictive is is actually seeking to do harm to others. That's not God. He's not that way. Now we have some scriptures here. Turn with me to Psalm 145 verse 9. We'll start there. Psalm 145, verses 9 and then 15 and 16 are teaching us of God's benevolence toward all creation. Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. So what do we see here? God is good to all. His mercy, His His condescending pity is over everything, all creation. So much so, that this fact, this reality is so consistent, it's so ingrained into the created order that every living thing is utterly dependent upon God, God's opening of His hand to make provision. And lo and behold, He gives it. Every single day He gives it. He's not a bloodthirsty God. He doesn't delight to see creatures just dying or, or suffering for no reason. He gives to His creatures. He's good to all, His mercy. Is overall. Turn to a New Testament witness, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, this is probably one of the more well-known texts with, with regard to this, the goodwill of God. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you. Now, why would you pray for anyone? Well, because you want good for them. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you can bear the family resemblance. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Think of all the farmers who were out today gathering in their hay before the the rain came. Some of us seen a truck go by today, a trailer full of hay. More than likely was loaded today, had to get taken to the barn today. Think of all of the the farmers that, that we will see in the fall gathering in their crops on the Lord's day rather than resting and worshiping, going about their business. Well, who made the rain fall for their crops? Who made their hay grow? Who gave them the strength and the knowledge and the skill to go about their tasks with proficiency? Who stayed off the rain so that those men could get their hay into their barn today before the rain came? God did. His goodness is over all. He, he, he brings the rain in its time and season so that crops grow and then He'll withhold rain so that men get their crops in their barns. God has done it all even for men who really utterly ignore them their entire, Him their entire lives. And the fact of the matter is many of them are more prosperous in their fields than any of us will be in our gardens this year. That's the way God is. He's good. He's good even to evil men. And many of them, as you know, if you've ever been around these types of people, they will, very, they will be very quick to throw out fake little prayers and hat tips to God or the good Lord for giving the rain. They don't have in their mind a single thought of adoration or worship or reverence for Him at all. We just thank the Lord for the rain. Who is the Lord to you? They don't worship Him. They don't delight in Him. But what they're showing is they are acknowledging That they know that His divine attributes are clearly seen in the things that have been created and yet they refuse to worship Him as He has commanded. And yet He provides for them. He's good to them. Turn to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14 verses 16 and 17. Paul says, In past generations, He, this is God, He allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is on the unbelieving world. When I read this, I immediately thought of the Cretans. The The Cretans were... Lazy gluttons. Now, you think of the type of culture that 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 that, that envisions for us. Do, do you not think that they glutted themselves on what they thought to be good, tasty, delightful food? Of course they did. Don't you think their hearts were full of mirth and gladness when they would gorge themselves and satisfy their appetites? They didn't... They weren't gluttons because they were you know, like eating food like a child, eating something they don't like. Just barely getting by, but still gluttonous. No, it was because the things that God has made for men to eat taste good. And even wicked men see this. And their hearts are very often glad, sinfully glad, yes, but glad in the things that have been created. God is the one who made those provisions. God has made a very delightful, enjoyable creation for all of us to share in, even wicked men. The note there says these three examples of God's benevolence to His creation become even more astounding when we consider that creation has fallen into sin and decay. Just think about what food must have tasted like in the Garden of Eden. It would be an indescribable act of benevolence if the infinitely glorious God of the universe were to humble himself to care for righteous creatures that honored him in their every thought, word, and deed. But God shows his benevolence to fallen men or fallen man who lives in rebellion against him. They don't honor God. They don't glorify God. They don't turn the goodness of God back to praise to him but, but it's not like an evil man can't taste a strawberry and say, that's good. That, that peach is good. That steak is good. That smell is good. That, that sunset was beautiful. They get to see it all. God does that. That's His benevolence. He gives them good things. Now, how, how should we respond? Turn to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verses 7 through 9. How should we respond? Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds, He prepares rain for the earth, He makes grass grow on the hills, He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. What should be our response? Every creature should turn and sing praise to God and thank Him. Praise and worship to God is the only rational response for creatures who have every single need provided for them. We've never had to go to another planet to find something that we needed to survive on this planet. Every single thing that we need is found in the dirt and the ground and the created order, created things. Turn a page over to Psalm 50, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Breath. Another common blessing. Wicked men have breath. They get to breathe. As I mentioned earlier, not only do they get to breathe, sometimes they get to breathe in and smell delightful smells. But every breath is a gift from God. God gives that. And how many millions will use their God-given breath to curse Him today? To revel in sin today? How many athletes use the Lord's day to multiply their breath in their, in their sport. They breathe more this day of the week than ever. More providence, more, more provision from God in their lungs on this day as they go about their sport on the day when they ought to be using that breath to not speak their own words, but to praise and to worship and, and glorify God. And yet He gives it. He gives it to them. He gives them all breath and they are expected to praise Him. And yet, when we turn to Romans 1, we see what man actually does. Turn there. Man ought to praise and worship God for all that he's done. But we know that he doesn't. Romans 1, verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God ought to use every breath to praise God. This is what man does. They, they don't honor God. They do not thank Him. And they exchange His glory for created things. And it's interesting if you, if you think about the idea of glory in Scripture and a visible, a visible manifestation of the perfections of God, and yet that is being exchanged here for visible images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The trade, look what man does. He trades the true incomprehensible glory, the manifestation of the infinite perfections of God for man-made icons of things that you can walk outside and look at. What do I make an icon? A a God to worship, an image. What do you want it to look like? Well, what if our God was, was like a snake? Well, I don't know how to carve a snake. I don't know the details. Well, just go outside and find one. They're everywhere. You grab a snake. You, that doesn't make any sense. Things that we could see. Everywhere we go, man wants to worship that rather than the incomprehensible God. They exchange the glory of the Creator for the thing He created. It is the, the very height of folly. The note there says there is no greater evidence of the fallenness of man than this. Why does man reject the loving and benevolent God that he knows exists? Why does man prefer to worship self or even beasts instead of the one true God? You know how silly it is to melt down your jewelry, to make a calf, and then say, these are your gods? It doesn't make any sense. All of us sitting here, we say, that doesn't make any sense. That's really kind of silly but that's what man does. It is because God is good and man has become a morally depraved creature who loves unrighteousness. Therefore he will go to the most ludicrous extremes to deny the God he knows and push him out of his mind and conscience. But on the backdrop of man's darkness is revealed the benevolence of God who demonstrates his love to the evil and the good as we read in Matthew 5:44 and 45. So God manifests His love in His benevolence toward all creatures, His goodwill toward all creatures. The second manifestation of God's love we see, number two, is in the giving, God's giving of His Son for the salvation of His people. We have learned that God's love is beyond comprehension and that it is manifested to all of His creatures in an almost infinite number of ways. You can't count the number of ways God's goodness has been shown. Nevertheless, the Scriptures teach us that there is one manifestation of the love of God that rises above them all. God's giving of His only Son for the salvation of His people. And this is where we come to that second category that we would refer to as God's love of complacency. The special covenant love of God for His people where He looks at them from eternity and says, I delight in you, I love you, I take pleasure in you, And I'm going to save you and bring you to myself. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. A text that we read last week. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. He says, here's found one of the most important passages in all of Scripture about the love of God and its greatest manifestation to men. 1 John 4, verses 8 through 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the first question is, what does that eighth verse teach us about the character and nature of God? And this is what we saw last week, so I'll just read the note. The truth communicated in this statement is that love is an attribute of God, or an aspect of His very nature. God could no more cease to be love than He could cease to be righteous. Even in the midst of His righteous judgment, He continues to be the God of love. All of His works, even His judgments, are manifestations of His love. Now in verse 9 we see this greatest manifestation of the love of God toward His people. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live Through him. God's love is shown in the sending of his son into the world. But the question is, why did he send his son into the world? And the answer is here given so that we, we might live. Not that God might live. God is life. Not that his son might live. He is life. The son has life in himself. But that we might live. We are by nature dead in sin. And our physical bodies will at some point die and be put into the ground. We will die. We are alienated from the life of God. By nature, we have no spiritual life. or are spiritually dead. And God was not satisfied to leave us in that dead condition. God's desire was that we have life. And even more amazingly... That's enough in itself. But specifically to have life through His Son. An abundant, eternal, divine life in us. And that's where we go back to what we've been talking about in the mornings in our union with Christ. It is not as though God sprinkled a little life from heaven. He joined us to His Son who is life. So that His life becomes ours. He gave us His Son. Then in verse 10... The question is asked, was God's love a response to our love for him? Did God look down and say, "You know what? They do love me. And since they love me so much, I guess I'll I guess I'll return the favor." Well, what does it say, verse 10? "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins." The measure of love, the standard of love, the definition of love is not whatever we muster up in ourselves to fire back in God's direction. That's not not the, the measure. It's God's love to us. So was God's love a response to our love for Him? No. No, it was not. Verse 19 says, We love because He first loved us. He started it. Not us. The note says, the text is very clear. Our love for God is the result of His love for us and the work of salvation that He has accomplished in our lives. It is important to note that the greatest manifestation of God's love is not just that He sent His Son, verse 9, but that He sent Him to suffer and die as a propitiation. The word propitiation comes from the Greek word halismos, which refers to a sacrifice that is made to satisfy the demands of God's justice and make it possible for a just God to fully pardon the sinner. This is exactly what the death of Christ accomplished. It is the greatest manifestation of God's love and the greatest reason for which God's people should love Him. He gave His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. The One who would take upon Himself, into Himself, the wrath that was owed to us, so that that wrath is no longer destined for us. It's taken away. It's gone. I I often think of a sponge, a, a, a wrath absorber. He absorbed it from us so that it would not come upon us. A propitiation. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the mercy seat. It's the same word. The propitiation seat, the place where the blood was sprinkled. In the Holy of Holies. He says, "We've learned in First John four eight to ten that God's sending of His Son to die for the sins of His people is the greatest demonstration of unmerited and unconditional love." What do the following scriptures teach us about this truth? Why did God send His Son to die for our sins and save us from judgment? So we turn first to John three sixteen and seventeen. John 3:16 and 17. We know these verses well. Hear them. Read them. Listen to them as if you had never heard them before. 4 Let me go back. Let me go back to earlier in the in the story. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, very often we read that phrase at the beginning, so loved... As if, as if the text is saying, "For God loved so much, God so much loved the world." But that's not what the word means. That word "so" could be translated "thus" or "in this way." In other words, for God, in this way, loved the world. In what way did He love the world? That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have ever everlasting life or eternal life. God had an intention and a purpose in the sending of His Son. In Christ, God made the way for all the believing ones to have eternal life. And this is how we see God's love. So that in sending Christ and in Christ taking our place, absorbing God's wrath on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, now the the only thing that's in the way we could say, the only so-called stipulation is this. God has done this so that all He has to say now is believe. Anybody who will believe, anybody who will trust in Christ can be saved. Why? Because Christ has already done all of the work. This is a manifestation of God's love. And again, it would, it would have been infinite mercy and condescension if He said for God so loved the world that He gave us steps one through five of various uh, prayers to pray and various various penances to offer and maybe a, a journey, some sort of pilgrimage to a certain place. And you, you do these five or ten things in your life and you'll have eternal life. That would have been infinite mercy. Here, here's the list. Fulfill it and you go to heaven. But God loved the world in this way, that He gave His Son so that Belief, faith is all that is commanded. Repent and believe and you're saved because all of the work to satisfy justice has been done. The note says God's love is not only manifested in God sending His Son, but also in the blessing that those who believe in Him receive, eternal life. The first coming of Christ was not to judge sinners, but to accomplish a work of salvation on their behalf. However, the second coming of Christ will not will will be not only to consummate the salvation that He has begun, but also to judge the unbelieving world. We could even say to consummate the judgment that began at the cross. He's going to consummate His work. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll look at another text there. Romans 5 verses 6 to 8. He says, this text is packed with some of the greatest truths of Christianity. First, we learn that we are helpless to save ourselves, verse 6. Second, we learn that we did not merit or deserve Christ's death on our behalf, verse 7. Third, we learn that Christ's death was motivated solely by the unmerited love of God for sinners. And notice that language that he uses. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, what he's, what he's showing us is that the love of God and of Jesus Christ for sinners far surpasses any kind of love you're ever going to find anywhere else. One, one might do this, and maybe some people would probably do that, but listen, God has far surpassed it all. He's done something that no one would ever do. God's love is greater than the love that the most tender mother has for her infant. Greater than the love of the most endearing husband to his bride or a bride to her husband. A greater love than the closest love of lifelong friends. God's love is, it far surpasses those. It makes those look like hatred in comparison. There is no love like God's love. And he says, if God loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us, even when we were enemies in his sight, what will this love cause him to do for us now? we are His children, verses 8 to 10 of that same chapter. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And I'll just read the note again. The argument of our text is flawless. Number one, God's love towards His people is so great that even when we were sinners, He sent His own Son to die for us. Therefore, number two, now that we have been justified by His death, we can be totally confident that we shall be saved from the wrath of God that is coming upon the entire world in the final judgment. In summation, when we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. Therefore, we can rest assured that our salvation will endure without fail throughout through the ongoing work of His resurrected Son. Hebrews 7.25 What is that ongoing work? Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is, this is post-cross. This is... Post-resurrection. This is post-ascension. Christ has entered into heaven now. And what is He doing? He's loving His people. God's love for us has not run out. God's love was not um, a build-up to one great outburst of love at the cross and then He just sort of tapers off from there. No. Even now, God's love is manifested in the ongoing intercessory work of Christ for us. God has not stopped loving His people. If anything, Christ's love from heaven is now greater than it was during His time on earth. I would suggest Thomas Goodwin's work, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth. If he was so compassionate in his earthly ministry, imagine how compassionate he is now that he's glorified, a glorified heart in heaven toward sinners. And He lives to make intercession out of love for us. Turn over to Romans 8, verses 32 through 39. Romans 8, 32 to 39. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see here God's love for us began in eternity. God's love entered into time through the effectual call coming through the preached word. He calls us to Himself. God's love is exercised in justifying sinners. His, his ongoing love is seen as He glorifies sinners. He's for us. And Christ even continues now To make intercession for us. God's love would not allow him even to hold back his own son, but compelled him to give his own son up for us. And if God's love has done all this, this is Paul's argument from from 29 onward. If God has done all of that, do we expect that he's just gonna stop loving at some point? He's just gonna cut it off, turn us loose? Paul says, no, nothing in all creation, nothing can stop God's love in Christ. Turn to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, of all gifts that could be given to the believer are mentioned in these last two texts. Number one, we will never be separated from the love of God. And two, we will be transformed into the image of Christ. We, when we see Him, when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Even in all the manifestations of God's love, and even as we grow in our understanding of that love, and how it was manifested in the giving of His Son, we still have not understood fully God's love. And the the truth of the matter is, in this life we will not. We can't. We can't comprehend it. We, we We couldn't endure it. It will not be until we see Him as He is and our hearts and minds are glorified in order to take in His glorious person that we will really begin to fathom His love. We say, yeah, well, we see God's love and that He sent His Son, but our minds can't even conceive of the glory and the beauty of His Son. We, we don't even understand the, the fullness of the love between the Father and the Son so that when we say the Father gave the Son, we don't even know what that means. That the Father would give His Son. We try to compare it to something like the giving of our own sons. But all of our sons together are not worth a Christ. When we see Him, we will at that point start to truly see His love. In this life, it's, it's almost like we've, we've taken the Scriptures and we've studied and we've, we've learned and all of that is just getting our feet in the starting blocks So that when we are glorified, we will be propelled into an eternity of running full speed after an apprehension of His love. Only then will we be able to really begin to wrap our minds around it. And even into eternity, we'll still be learning of His love. It's only in seeing Him as He is that we'll be able to see His love for what it is. We'll say, oh, oh, that's the one that was given. Oh, now I see. Now I understand. Right now we can't understand. And yet we still pray for strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That should be a regular prayer of ours. We pray that we would know more and more God's love. So let's do that.